please join me in praying as we open God's word. Lord, we want to pause once again just to say thank you. Thank you for loving us the way you have. We're such a ragtag group of people with so many sins and failures, weaknesses. We are helpless and hopeless apart from your mercy and your grace, and you have freely bestowed that upon us through your son, Jesus Christ. Jesus, we praise you and thank you that you drank the cup of wrath so that we could drink from the cup of salvation. We give you glory and honor for you are worthy. And Lord, I confess this morning I'm a nobody and I don't need to be anybody, but you are worthy of wisdom and glory and power and might. You're worthy of our worship and our obedience, our affection, our love, and our trust. And so God, we pray that you would speak to us this morning through your word. Change us. Make us who you want us to be for your glory. Show us more of you as we gaze upon your word. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so if you're visiting with us this morning, uh, today actually marks the end of our study through the book of Genesis. I think this is about our 47th message from this series. We started July of last year, and and we've been studying Genesis um, for not just for no reason. Uh, We believe that it is important. Uh, All of Scripture is inspired by God, not just the New Testament, not just the red letters, all of it, and we want to affirm that. But Genesis is especially important for us because it reveals who God is. That's something you need to know, something I need to know. Genesis tells us who we are. It's the starting point for answering questions of identity and purpose. Genesis tells us what went wrong with the world. We know there's so much about this world that is broken and distorted. We see how it all began with the sin of Adam in the garden. But Genesis also tells us what God is doing to fix all this. Genesis Genesis is chapter one of the great story, the story of creation, how God made everything good, the fall, how we broke it and brought sin and death into the world. But it's also the beginning of redemption, how God promised to make all things right. It's the beginning of the story that ends with a great and glorious consummation. With God redeeming sinners and restoring them to himself, making all things new, a new heaven, a new earth that is coming one day that will be what Eden was always intended to be. Genesis is the beginning of this great narrative arc of scripture, and we desperately need to understand these truths in order to understand the rest of the Bible, in order to understand God and understand ourselves and understand how we fit into This great story. Over and over again, since the time of Abraham, we've seen uh, in this book of Genesis that there's been a constant theme, a theme of an incredible promise, a promise that God would make Abraham into a great nation, that God would bless him, and that God would bless all the families of the earth, not just Israel, all the Gentiles, every tribe and tongue and people and nation, that God would bring blessing to all the families of the earth through the descendants of Abraham. And as this book comes to a close, it drives home the importance of faith, faith in this promise of God. And it shows us what it really looks like to actually trust this God, the God who has made these promises to us. In the story of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, we've been shown over and over again that faith in God's promise is the key to life and the key to joy the key to peace, and the only path to salvation. 
Only over the last several weeks, we've been basically following the story of Joseph's life. Abraham had a son named Isaac. Isaac had Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons, and one of his younger two sons was named Joseph. And Joseph's life is an amazing story that's full of surprising twists and turns. And if you don't know that story, I don't have time to recap it for you, but you should go and read it. Go back to Genesis towards the end of the book there and read this story. It's an amazing story of mistreatment and suffering but a story of perseverance and ultimately of vindication. Joseph's story is really about more than Joseph, though. I mean, you'll be impressed, I guess, with Joseph as you read his story, but even more than that, you'll be impressed with God because the story of Joseph puts the providence of God on display. Providence meaning that God ordains all things, that he is guiding and governing and controlling all things for a good purpose, the fulfillment of his will. In his plan, we see in the life of Joseph that God is in control, that he always keeps his promises, and that he is therefore worthy of our trust and our faith and our obedience. He's working all things together, as Paul would later write, for good. At this point in Joseph's story, just kind of catch you up to where we're at, God has rescued his covenant people from a terrible seven year famine, and he's done it through the suffering and faithfulness of Joseph. Because of Joseph's wise counsel while he was in Egypt, Egypt had plenty of food for themselves during this time of famine. And not just enough food for them. They had food to share with their neighbors, with the surrounding nations, including the family of Joseph. Joseph's family had ended up there uh, to benefit from food. They needed it. And although Joseph was there because of his brother's betrayal, because they basically stabbed him in the back, they were cruel to him, sold him as a slave, Despite all that, Joseph welcomes them to his home there in Egypt, and he happily provides for them. Now the family of Israel is safe and sound. They have all their needs met and provided for, but they're living in Egypt. They're not in the land of promise. God had promised to give them the land of Canaan, but they're not yet in possession of it. But as we will see, they have not forgotten God's promise to give them this land. So I want to dive into our text this morning. We're actually going to start at the end of chapter 49, if you'll look up in verse 29. And what we see here is, as Jacob, uh, Joseph's father, as his life draws to an end, what we see is a picture of faith at the finish line. Faith at the finish line. Look what happens here. After he's blessed all of his sons and gathered them to his bedside, it says, then he commanded them, verse 29, and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. As Jacob's life draws to an end, we see faith. Faith all the way at the finish line. 
He's about to die, but he's full of hope. He's just pronounced this prophetic blessing. If you remember from a couple weeks ago, if you look back in your Bibles, you see this poetic prophecy of what's going to happen to the tribes that will come from each of his 12 sons. And if you read through that, Jacob is fully expecting them to be in the land. He's fully expecting this little band of brothers, these 70 people, his family, to grow into a great nation. And he knows their destiny is to be in Canaan, not in Egypt. And he wants to make sure that he gets buried there, that his bones are laid to rest with his ancestors in a very specific place that Abraham had purchased long ago. Now, this is not the first time that Jacob had made this point. If you go back to chapter 47, he's already made Joseph swear a very serious oath. He said, put your hand under my thigh, swear on basically the sign of the covenant, circumcision, that you're going to do this. Why is this so important to him? I mean, maybe some of you uh, have made burial plans. I know my folks already have a place picked out where they want to be buried. Um, Part of that sometimes is to save the headache for your kids. Some of it is because you want to be buried near family or in a place that is significant to you. But why is that such a big deal to Jacob? Well, we need to think about this. Jacob understands that this property, I mean, he gives us all this detail I mean, as I'm reading through this, you might say, really? Do we need all of that specific detail about this field and who used to own it and who bought it and who's buried there? Why all this detail? Well, Jacob understands that Abraham long ago made an investment in the future. It was a statement that Abraham believed That even though he would not live to see it, his descendants would inherit that land. And he believed it enough to put his money where his mouth was. That piece of land was not only a monument to Abraham's faith, that he believed this place would be theirs, but it was a permanent reminder to his descendants of God's covenant promise to them. It's not just Jacob's memory of what Abraham did. Jacob also remembers what God had told him. God had told Jacob to his face that Egypt would not be their permanent home. Back in chapter 46, as Jacob had heard the news that Joseph was actually still alive and that he was calling them to come join him in Egypt, God had spoken to Jacob and said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. What does he mean, bring you up again? I'll bring you back. I'll bring you back here to the place I've promised you. And God told him that Joseph's hand shall close your eyes, that he would die in the presence of Joseph. But it would not mean that their destiny was in Egypt. You see, Jacob is aware of the legacy of his forefather's faith, and he remembered God's word to him. So he knew where he belonged, and he knew that it wasn't in Egypt. He could sing that song, this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. This isn't where I belong. Along with Abraham and Isaac before him, he was a recipient of God's promise. And even at the point of death, and here's what I want you to get, even at the point of death, this was Jacob's greatest concern. This is what he was focused on as he came to die. What, what's your greatest concern? If you knew that you were to die at some point today, what would be on your mind? What would be the thing that you wanted to communicate to your loved ones, to your friends and family? Would it be the fulfillment of God's plans and God's purposes in the world? About five years ago, I, I went to visit uh, an older saint um, from the church where I was, I was pastoring there 
in Olathe. Um, this man was in his late 80s, and probably 50 years previous to that, he'd actually been shot in the face uh, in a bank heist that was gone wrong. Uh, he was literally a bank robber, uh, and he went to prison. But while in prison, someone shared the gospel with him. He placed his faith and trust in Jesus Christ. He became a believer. He ended up having a, a huge ministry there in, in the prison system, um, leading Bible studies, witnessing to others, sharing his faith. And when he got out, which was a miracle in and of itself, because he was supposed to be there for life, but when he got out, he continued to have a ministry uh, to inmates in the prison. Um, and, and so I went to encourage this guy. I'd heard his testimony. Um, he had cancer, and things were starting to go quickly. He was in the nursing home, basically under hospice care, And when I got there, I was thinking, I'm going to pray with him. I'm going to read some scripture with him and try to encourage him to finish strong, to finish the race. But when I got there, he didn't want to talk about himself at all. He wasn't interested at all in talking about his health, what was going on. You know what he wanted to talk about? He told me that he prayed regularly for me and for the foundation that was being laid for this church. He said, how's the church plant going? When are you guys going to start? How are you going to do this? What's Lawrence like? Tell me what challenges there are to the gospel there. He told me that he prayed regularly for me. He, he was both excited and concerned. He said, I know how difficult that can be. I mean, he had made a, a career out of sharing the gospel with people who don't always want to hear it. And he was concerned for us. He was praying for you, even though he didn't know you yet. And he was excited about the advance of the gospel. I mean, he's getting ready to die, but he wanted to talk about what was going on out here. He longed to see sinners saved. He was excited to know that believers would be strengthened. He was excited about Christ's promise to build his church. You know, I went to encourage a man named Kurt Shoup, but when I left, I was the one who had been ministered to. I was the one who was blessed and encouraged by this mature, godly man who, on his deathbed, is excited about the fulfillment of God's plans in the world. That's a mature faith, isn't it? And that's what we see in Jacob here as well. Jacob's preparing to die, but he's focused on God's plan. He has had a lot of ups and downs. But when he reaches the end, he's not going kicking and screaming. He's at peace. He's full of faith. He knows who his God is. He knows his God is faithful. And so as he takes his last breaths, he burns out brightly. His eyes may be dim, but his heart is fully fixed on the promise of God. Isn't that how we want to finish? You know, the Christian life is a race, and it's a marathon. You know, and if you complete 99% of a marathon but don't cross the finish line, it's been a waste. Finishing strong matters, and Jacob did. We want to be able to say with the Apostle Paul, like he says in 2 Timothy 4, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. I think Jacob could say that. And then we get to verse 33, and he dies. He breathes his last, draws up his feet into the bed, and it says here he's gathered to his people. He's at peace with God, surrounded by all his sons, especially Joseph, who's there, just as God had said, to close his eyes. And his last wishes are expressing a fully formed faith as he calls on his sons to hold on to that promise. He says, don't bury me here. Take me and put me in the cave with Abraham And Isaac, with their wives, with my wife Leah, that's where I belong. And then comes the burial. We won't have time to look at this in depth. In verses 1 through 14, we see an amazing procession. It says, I'll just read it for you with just a couple comments. It says, Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, 
to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it. There's a big process. Um, the Egyptians were famous for you know, their mummification process. They're doing all of that, the best treatment possible, because Joseph is second in command of all in, in all of Egypt, so the best and most professional are there. Forty days for the embalming. And it says the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, Please speak in the ears of the Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die. In my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan, there shall you bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father, then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Pharaoh gives his blessing. He gives permission for this little seedling nation of Israel to go up from Egypt about 400 years later, there would be another Pharaoh who'd need a little bit more motivation before he would give his blessing for the people of Israel to go up out of the land. But this Pharaoh says, yes, go bury your father. Go bury your father. He gives his blessing. Verse 7, so Joseph went up to bury his father. And with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers and his father's household, only their children, their flocks, and their herds, were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning of the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Abel Mitzrayim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus, his sons did for him as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron, the Hittite, to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. You know, there's a lot of attention given here to the time of mourning and the big burial procession for Jacob. It's pretty amazing here. They mourned for him in Egypt 70 days. History tells us that the appointed time of mourning for a Pharaoh, who was considered to be a god, was 72 days. So this foreigner, this nomadic shepherd, the father of Joseph is given 70 days of mourning. With Pharaoh's permission and blessing, his sons carry out his last request. They take his body to the family burial ground. And all the pomp and ceremony that was typically reserved by a king, it gets noticed by all the neighbors. They say, wow, what an incredible time of mourning for this man. There's great honor given to Jacob, the father of the nation that would be called after his name, Israel. That's in fulfillment, in partial fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham years ago. In chapter 12, verse 2, God had told Abraham, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. Honored by Pharaoh, wept for by the whole nation of Egypt, acknowledged and honored by all the nations of Canaan as they see this procession coming by. Jacob's name has been made great in that land. You know, true greatness is not found in worldly accomplishments. It's not found in success or wealth. 
It's found in faith that endures to the end. True blessing is really the privilege of receiving God's grace. And Jacob has received a lot of grace from God. And that's what is so significant about the ending of his life, honored by these people because of the favor that God has shown him. And this scene is really a dress rehearsal for the Exodus. These 12 sons carry their father to Canaan. 400 years later, under the leadership of Moses and then later Joshua, 12 tribes would return to this land, carrying with them the bones of Joseph and carrying in their hearts the same promise that Jacob had once hoped in. So Jacob's story is officially complete. Abraham has lived and died and been buried. Isaac has lived and died and been buried. And now Jacob, the last of these patriarchs, has lived and died and been buried. His story is complete. So what happens with the rest of the family? I mean, what's going to happen now with his, with his 12 sons now that the patriarch is gone? Well, Joseph returned with his brothers to Egypt, as it says in verse 14. And there we see that not everything is okay back home on the ranch. There is a growing fear of retribution. We've seen a portrait of Jacob's faith, faith all the way to the finish line. But now we're going to see an example of faith in the life of Joseph, faith that is expressed in forgiveness. Listen to what happens starting in verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus, he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. His faith is expressed in forgiveness. Though the brothers are seen united around the grave of their father, as they get back home, they're scared. They begin to grow uneasy. They're afraid that Joseph might be gunning for them. Remember what Esau had said about Jacob long ago? Jacob had deceived his brother, tricked him out of his birthright, ripped him off. And what had Esau said? He said, I'm going to wait till my dad dies, and then when dad is gone, I'm going to kill my brother. He was bent on revenge. He was just waiting for the right time. And Joseph's brothers are worried that Joseph might be thinking something along the same lines. And they're at his mercy because he's the second in command. He's basically the vice regent over all of Egypt. All he has to do is snap his fingers and the entire army of Egypt will be at their doorstep to bring justice to bear upon them for their crimes against Joseph. So they decide to approach him and plead for mercy. And I want to look at the anatomy of their confession because I think there's something we can learn from the way they approach Joseph. This is a good confession. There's bad confessions and good confessions. You know, a bad confession is, you know, Tyler, I'm sorry if you felt offended by what I did. You know, that's a bad one. Like, I'm not taking any responsibility. This is a good, this is a good confession, okay? Look at, look at what they do. First, they confess their wrongdoing. Look in verse 17. Look at the words they use. 
transgression, sin, evil. It says, please forgive the transgression of your servants. They don't try to call what happened long ago, you know, when they were jealous and they stripped him of his coat and threw him in a pit and then sold him as a slave and tore up his jacket and smeared blood and said, look, Dad, we found this. Does this look familiar? You know, they don't call that a mistake. They call it evil. They call it sin. They call it transgression. They, they, they don't call it, you know, a misunderstanding. They don't try to soften the ugly reality of the wicked things they had done against Joseph. They call it what it is. They call it evil. They call it sin. They call it transgression. This is a sign of a truly repentant heart. As David writes in Psalm 51.3, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. As David repents of his sin before God, he confesses. He calls it what it is. This is true confession. Without such an honest admission of the sinfulness of sin, there cannot be restoration. And there cannot be forgiveness. But they don't simply confess their sin. They don't simply admit that what they did was wrong. Secondly, they actually request forgiveness. They ask him to forgive. Please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. You know, they've expressed regret previously. If you go back a few chapters, they had been very evidently um, regretting that they had ever did what they did to Joseph. But it's one thing to regret that you did something wrong. It's another thing to approach the person against whom you sinned and explicitly ask them to forgive you. Although Joseph had shown them great kindness. I mean, consider this. They've been in Egypt for 17 years And it'd be tempting just to think that this is water under the bridge. Joseph's been kind to them, but they know that their crime against him is still lingering in the air. So now they make this request clear and direct. Please forgive us. And this is important. It's important if Joseph and his brothers will ever be fully reconciled. You see, forgiveness, even though it may already be present in the heart of the person who's been sinned against, it must be asked for before it can be received. Does that make sense? I mean, someone's heart might already be forgiving towards you, but you can't receive that until you ask for it. And that's what they do. They come and request his forgiveness. So they confess their sin, they request forgiveness, and then in verse 18, they really show an amazing expression of humble contrition. They fall down before him, And say, behold, we are your servants. What this shows us is that this is no flippant apology. Like, yeah, that was bad. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? This is no shallow, flippant thing. This is humble and heartfelt. They are acknowledging in both word and in even their posture that they are at his mercy and that they owe him their lives. He doesn't have to forgive them. He would be justified to send them off to the executioner but they are asking for mercy here. It's really an amazing uh, portrait of what's really a quality confession. I think there's something we can learn here, but the focus in this section is really not so much on the brothers. It's more so on Joseph and how he responds to their confession. And in his response to his brothers, we find one of the most profound theological statements in all of the Bible, where Joseph says, you meant this for evil. But God meant it for good. This is no abstract idea. I mean, consider who it is who's saying it. 
I mean, this is a deeply personal statement. This is a spiritual gem that has been discovered in the minds of suffering. And in his words, in Joseph's statement to them, we learn something about God, his nature. And we learn something about the nature of true forgiveness as well. Just as they made uh, their confession, their request, and their bow before him, we see Joseph responding to, him, to them. He wept. And he's not weeping for the first time. If you go back a few chapters, you'll see there's been several occasions where Joseph breaks down in tears. Why is Joseph weeping? Why, doesn't, why isn't he saying, you guys already know, it's okay. It's not a big deal. He weeps. Why does he weep? Well, just because he's been showing them kindness for 17 years. Just because he's not out to get them. That doesn't mean that there's no pain. Joseph still carries the scars of rejection and abuse at the hands of his brothers. He's not forgotten the years of slavery. He's not forgotten uh, the years of imprisonment before he was miraculously appointed to Pharaoh's court. You see, as Joseph offers them forgiveness, he's not pretending that sin doesn't hurt. And when you and I are called to forgive others, that doesn't mean pretending that what's been done to us hasn't caused deep pain. Forgiveness does not mean we pretend that it wasn't that big a deal. Forgiveness doesn't mean that we pretend as if we've forgotten all about it. Offering forgiveness is not something that only people who are over it are supposed to do. Joseph is weeping because as they confess their sin to him and ask forgiveness, it brings back afresh the memory of all the pain and the suffering that he's been through. But he's also weeping because he's grieved that after all these years, their relationship is still plagued by fear and mistrust. You see, their sin not only hurt him, it damaged the relationship. It wrecked their family. It ruined the fellowship and the joy and the unity and the closeness that they could have had. And Joseph is weeping because it's taken this long for them to openly acknowledge it. It's taken this long They've not confessed their sin or asked his forgiveness for over 17 years. And so he weeps. But Joseph was, has already forgiven them in his heart years before. And he now is glad to formally extend it to them. Reconciliation can now fully take place. And I want you to notice, just as, you, as we looked at sort of the anatomy of confession, look at the anatomy here of Joseph's forgiveness. We see, first of all, a desire for reconciliation in verse 19, he says, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? His first word is one of comfort. He assures them of his desire, that his desire is for reconciliation, not revenge. I mean, he's already shown this. Back in chapter 45, he told them, do not fear. God sent me here before you. I mean, years before, Joseph was already there. He was just waiting for them to finally ask for forgiveness, even though he was already there in his heart. His heart's been there all along, and nothing has changed. He says, do not fear. So his heart desires reconciliation. If, if you are to extend forgiveness to others when they sin against you, it first of all has to start with a desire to be reconciled. If you don't want to, it's going to be impossible to do it. Joseph has that desire. That desire is shaped by several factors, and a primary one is what he says next. He says, not only says, do not fear, he says, am I in the place of God? Joseph's forgiveness is really an expression of his humble recognition of God's role, God's place 
and his. He says, God is the judge. It's God's job to bring vengeance. It's God's job to execute justice. That's not my job. It's really the same cry, similar cry as what Jacob exclaimed back in chapter 35. Remember when Rachel said, give me children or else I will die? And what did Jacob say? He said, am I in the place of God? It's the same thing that Joseph says here. Only God has the authority or the power to open the womb, and only God has the authority to render justice. You know, too often we are not okay with the fact that God is God and we are not. I mean, we'd never say that out loud, I hope. We know that that's blasphemous. But emotionally, subconsciously, sometimes we swim in that lane, don't we? We're not okay with not being omnipotent, having all power to do all things. We're not okay with being omniscient, with not knowing everything. We're not okay with being omnipresent, being everywhere, and being able to hold the world together. We want to be supreme. We want to receive glory. We want our kingdom to come. We want our will to be done. But the freedom and the power to forgive comes only when we recognize our rightful place. That there's two categories in all the universe. There's God and there's everything else. And you and I live in that everything else basket, okay? God is one of a kind. And he is the one who will judge. And Joseph recognizes that. He says, listen, I'm not interested in that. Let God work all that out. You don't need to be afraid of me. And then comes the theological atomic bomb in verse 20. He says, do not fear for mine the place of God. And then verse 20, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. God meant it for good. Within this amazing statement is, first of all, an honest recognition of their sin. Just as they were honest in saying what we did against you was wrong, it was sin, it was evil, it was transgression, Joseph doesn't minimize that. He's honest in offering forgiveness. He doesn't say, oh, I'm sure you didn't mean it, or hey, you know what, everybody makes a mistake now and then. He doesn't say, it's really okay, it's not that big a deal, or hey, that was a long time ago, let's let bygones be bygones. He says, you meant evil against me. He looks it square in the face, and even in the process of offering forgiveness, he too is honest about the seriousness of sin. He calls it what it is. You see, true forgiveness does not minimize sin. It magnifies mercy. It's that way when God forgives us. When God forgives you and me of our sin, when he nails it to the cross, when he puts his son on the tree to shed his blood, he's not saying your sin's not that big of a deal. I can actually, we can take care of that. It's nothing. He's not minimizing our sin at all. Christ suffered unbelievable horrors and agony because of our sin. As the full justice of God, as Michael mentioned earlier, that cup of wrath was drained down to the very last drop. Our sin cost Jesus everything. But God gives us mercy. He forgives us. He forgives us not to minimize our sin, but to magnify his mercy, to show us the glory and the power of his ability to deal with our sin. That's why Psalm 130 says, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? None of us. But there is forgiveness with you. Why? So that we won't feel as bad about our sin? No. The psalmist says, there is forgiveness with you so that you may be feared. God's mercy is magnified. And forgiveness. It's not that sin is minimized. Joseph said, you meant evil against me. He acknowledges the reality of their sin, but then he embraces 
God's sovereign plan. He says, but, but, as bad as your sin is, as real as my pain was, as difficult as all those years were, there's something greater at work that is bigger and and overshadows and eclipses all of that and overcomes all of that. He says, God meant it for good. It's not that Joseph sees their sin as small. It's that he sees God's good purposes as bigger. He's seeing through the eyes of faith. He's seeing what God sees. He's seeing what God is doing. And he's resting in that. He's, He's not just seeing that it's true. Get this, he's embracing it. He's embracing it. You know, it's one thing for us to say that we believe that God's in control, right? That God's over the weather, and he's over cancer, and he's over what happens at our job, and he's over our, our families, and over the lives of our children, and wars, and earthquakes, and all of that. We know that he's sovereign over all things. It's one thing to know that it's true, but it's another thing to embrace that, and actually to allow that theological reality to shape your emotional responses to life. That's where Joseph's at. This is a remarkable faith. He believes God is sovereign, and he embraces that truth wholeheartedly. He says, I know my place in God's program, in God's plan, and I embrace it. You know what? I think Joseph's been there for a while, too. This isn't a new place for him to be. Think about it. If Joseph was interested in revenge, his brothers weren't the only candidates, were they? I mean, there was other people that had made Joseph's life miserable. What about Potiphar's wife, who tried to seduce him and then falsely accused him of assault and got him thrown in prison? I mean, imagine how she was feeling when she saw the parade in this new viceroy of Egypt named Joseph walking by. She's probably going, oh, no, I hope he doesn't come for me. But we don't read anything about him getting revenge on Potiphar's wife. Or what about Potiphar himself, his old boss? There's no word of judgment on him. Or what about the cupbearer who forgot about Joseph and left him in prison for like over two years after he promised he would put in a good word for him? Nothing is said of Joseph ever trying to settle the score with any of these people. When Joseph announces his perspective on God's providence, God's control over this situation, it's not the first time that he's considered this powerful truth, the truth of God's purpose in his suffering. Joseph knows that his suffering is real, it was painful, it was difficult, but he knows that it means something and that there's value in it, that it was purposeful in it, that there was a good plan even in the midst of his suffering. And he had come to embrace that. He understood now that God wanted him in Egypt. He understood now why. I mean, he says so much. He says, God meant it for good, and what's the specific good? It's to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. He says, I know that because I'm here, you are all alive, as well as the people of Egypt and some of our neighbors. And he's embraced that. You know, too many people harbor bitterness in their lives. Bitterness because of missed opportunities, disappointments, maybe pain and suffering. Because they don't realize that in God's providence, everything that has happened to us is a part of our journey and is used by God to make us who we are and to bring us to where he wants us to be. And that's just not always easy, but it is always good. Joseph believed that. You know, unlike Joseph, we don't always get 2020 hindsight, do we? To be able to look back and say, oh, I understand now exactly why all of these things happened to me. But the story of Joseph has been recorded for us here to help us because when you and I can't see the purpose in our suffering, 
We need to be able to see the God who does have a purpose, the God who does know the reason for our suffering so that we can trust him. Even if we don't understand, God does. Even if we can't find the purpose in it, it is there. And this is true even when we suffer mistreatment at the hands of others. I love what Jerry Bridges writes in his book, Trusting God. He says, if God is not sovereign in the decisions and actions of other people as they affect us, then there is a whole major area of our lives where we cannot trust God. And we are left, so to speak, to fend for ourselves. Wouldn't that be terrifying? Wouldn't that be terrifying if other people's sin against you was something God couldn't prevent? If it was something God couldn't control? If it was something that God couldn't use to bring about his good purposes? But God is sovereign over all those things. And so we can trust him. And we do not need to despair. You know, it's not just that God's in control of all things. I mean, Joseph and we know that. Joseph understood that God's purposes are good. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. You see, they had evil intentions. They wanted to get rid of Joseph. But Joseph is acknowledging something else. You failed. You tried to get rid of me. You tried to shut me up. I had this dream that I would be great and you would all bow down, bow down to me. And you tried to invalidate that dream. He says, you tried and you failed. And God's purpose is the one that actually succeeded. God meant it for good. And God's purpose overcame their evil intentions. The covenant family has been rescued. Joseph has been exalted. And God's promise is still alive. God succeeded. You see, God's promise transcends even human agency, actions, and intentions. You know, Joseph's response to them when he says, God, you meant it for evil and God meant it for good, Joseph doesn't exactly explain to us how that always works out, does he? I'd like to know that sometimes. He doesn't tell us how God's purposes for good and man's sinful intentions and actions work together. Joseph simply asserts that this is true. And we have historical evidence for the fact that it is true. We look to the story of Jesus. We see the sinful actions of, of hateful men against Jesus and killing him on the cross. We see that God works all that together for good to bring us salvation. We see throughout history examples, but we're never told exactly, exactly how all this works out. There is a mystery here. But there's also glory. This is not a riddle to be solved. It's a deep truth that should both humble us and comfort us, that this is how our God operates. This is how he works. And that's the effect it has on Joseph. And so because of this, because he desires to be reconciled with them, because he knows his place, that he's not the judge, because he sees God's hand in all of it and he embraces it, Joseph extends forgiveness to them and he shows them mercy and grace. He says in verse 21, do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to him. The I in verse 21 is emphatic. I mean, they're worried because they sinned against him specifically. And he says, I, I myself will do this for you. This is a personal commitment to care for them. And it's a lot more than just philanthropy. He's, he's speaking to their heart as well, comfort and kindness. He shows them compassion as well as great generosity. He cares for what they feel. Don't be afraid. He comforts them. But he also cares for what they need. He provides for them. 
You see, they asked for mercy. Mercy is not getting the judgment that we deserved. And that's what they asked for. And he gave them that. He said, do not fear. But Joseph gives them something even more than what they're asking for. He gives them grace, personal care and provision, providing for them what they needed, not just for them, but for their children as well. Mercy is escaping the justice we deserve. Grace is receiving the blessings that we have not earned. And that's what they get from Joseph. The amazing thing for these brothers is that the one that they sinned against, the one they wronged, is the one who actually rescues them and saves their life. We see an amazing dynamic at work here in the life of Joseph, that a righteous man suffered for the salvation, the rescue of many. And this surprising pattern will one day find its fullest expression in the suffering of Jesus. He would be put to death by the hands of wicked men, but ultimately it was God's plan to bring salvation to the world through his suffering. Jesus Christ, the one against whom we have sinned, is the one who gives us mercy, who forgives us. The forgiveness of our crimes against God by the shedding of his blood. And it's through Jesus that you and I receive grace, the undeserved gift of righteousness and love, the undeserved gift of eternal life and reconciliation with God and a promise of joy and resurrection with our Savior. Mercy and grace from the one who had been sinned against. What a beautiful picture that points forward to Jesus Christ. That's Joseph's forgiveness towards his brother. So we see faith in in the way that Jacob finishes the race. We see faith in the way Joseph um, forgives his brothers. And then we see finally in conclusion a confident call for faith as Joseph speaks to his brothers. Verse 22, Joseph remained in Egypt, he and all his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children, that's one of his sons, of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, that's his other son, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him. And he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Like his father Jacob, Joseph's last and greatest concern when he came to die was the covenant promise. He says, bury me too in the land. That's where I want to be. But there's more here than just another request for burial. If you look closely, Joseph is eager to see faith continue beyond his generation. Notice what he says. God will visit you. He says this in verse 24. And then again in verse 25. God will surely visit you. Joseph was confident that God would do this. He knew that God was going to bring them back to the land of Canaan. He knew that Abraham believed this, that Isaac believed this, his father Jacob believed this. Now here's the question to those who remained as he prepared to die. Will you believe this? Will you believe it enough to look for it and wait for it? Will you believe it enough to not bury me here, but take my bones with you when you go? You see, Joseph's final wishes express his faith, but it also calls for faith. He was adamant that they too embrace God's promise. You see, you can't hope in God's promise and not desire to see others share in your faith. If you truly know Jesus and you've come to trust in the good news of the gospel, you're not content to go to heaven alone. 
You want to bring as many people with you as you can. You want them to know the truth and to believe in the truth. Does your faith in God's promise, in the good news of the gospel, does it compel you to tell others? Are you the kind of person who invites others to believe in what God has said? You say, I know that God is going to do this. I know that Jesus died and rose again, and I know that he's coming back. Come with me. Join me in following Christ and believing in his promises. Do you call men and women to believe in the promise of the gospel? You know, at the end of this story, the story that's focused on God's promise and God's providence, Joseph calls for faith even as he's slipping into the grave. He, he dies like Jacob and he's put in a coffin in Egypt, far from the land of Canaan that God had promised them. And so the book of Genesis comes to an end. Death, burial, but there's also here an eager expectation, an expectation that Joseph is done, the book of Genesis is done, but God's not done. There is more to come after this. I love how Derek Kidner summarizes the ending here. He says, the book of Genesis, like the Old Testament in microcosm, ends by pointing beyond its own story. Man had tra traveled far from Eden to a coffin, and the chosen family far from Canaan to Egypt. But Joseph's charge concerning his bones was a gesture of faith which would not be disappointed. Thus, the book ends with both closure and a note of anticipation, anticipation that God would visit them. Go home and read Exodus this week. You'll see what that looked like. An anticipation that they would return to Canaan to possess the land. Read the book of Joshua. See what that looked like. Anticipation of great deeds that would be done by the tribes of Israel. Read First and Second Samuel and Kings and Chronicles and see that all, all that God did in that nation. There's an anticipation that the seed of the woman would come and crush the head of the serpent. Read the Gospels and see Jesus, the son of Abraham, as he came to bring salvation. And there's an expectation here of the undoing of the curse and blessing for all the families of the earth. Read the book of Revelation and see the glory of this kingdom that would one day come in which all things would be put right. You know, we read these closing verses this morning as a people who also have a sovereign God, a God who made all things good in Genesis 1, and a God, as we see in Genesis 50, who means all things for good. And we read it as people who also have a promise that God will surely visit us and he will bring us up out of this land. John 14, 2, Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am there, you may be also. May we look with eager expectation for the return of our Savior as we walk by faith in his promises. God, as we've studied this book of Genesis, I thank you for how you've shown us a glimpse of your power and your majesty and your glory, the God who creates, the God who can send a flood across the world, the God who can frustrate even the best laid plans of man, but also the God who is gracious, who sought out an unsuspecting man named Abraham and made a gracious promise to bless him and to bring blessing to us through him. We thank you, God, for the portrait of your faithfulness and your providence that we've seen throughout these chapters. I pray, God, that you would use this book to strengthen our faith, to deepen our understanding of the story of Scripture and how it all fits together. 
And I pray, Lord, that you would whet our appetites to continue reading this great book, to see more of your power and your glory and your grace. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.